Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scale Lab. I'm Joe Wilson, your co-host, and I am here with uh, the awesome co-host that I get to spend time with. And since today's episode does center around things such as vintage things, which I do like to consider myself vintage, uh, I was thinking if I was like a 67 Corvette, then Constantine, you you would be... Uh, uh, duff? Uh, a the, duff. The yes. duff? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Or a spiker. Maybe a spiker. No, no I on. think a duff. A duff can drive as fast backwards as forwards. So that's, that was an incredible innovation at the time. I don't know how practical it is, but uh, anyone who knows uh, television from the 80s will still remember the races we had at Zandvoort with duffs driving backwards. It's so. good that we date ourselves as we go into this uh, particular episode. <laughs> okay. Yeah, with us, um, our amazing guest, guest Thomas Plantinga, who uh, we all know of... Uh, the fast-growing company Vinted, and uh, who's kind of uprooting the uh, the fashion industry in the way we sell, you know, and and, and resell our our clothing. But first, uh, what not everybody knows is what the entrepreneurial story is of um, of our guest. So uh, maybe Thomas, can you take us through what you did before you came uh, to Vinted? Sure, sure. Thanks for inviting. By the way, I'm excited to, to be here. To have you. And um, yeah, so so a lot of failures before I, I came here, I think. Uh, so it's uh, it all started, I, I graduated uh, in, uh, in Eindhoven uh, Tech University. And um, I, I, I was really intrigued by research, loved it, um, but didn't like the prospect of, you know, being in a laboratory the rest of my life because, you know, I was going into this physics direction and, you know, that most of these guys end up in a laboratory somewhere in the basement. And that was literally where my PhD would be. So I thought, like, um, I really liked kitesurfing, and I went <laughs> kitesurfing for a while because I, I thought, like, that I could make money with that. But um, Professional? You're going to yeah, go pro? And, uh, yeah, exactly. So I thought that that would be a great idea. And, and I came, you know, after six, nine months, I came to the conclusion, well, actually, I have other talents that, that you know, make, make, uh, make more sense to focus on. And then my friend uh, called me and he said, Thomas, you know what? You're building all those mathematical models at the TU. Uh, I've learned how to program now. And, you know, we can build businesses by just learning how to code and build it. You know, we can build something like a booking or like whatever. And these guys just guys build it themselves as well. I said, okay, that's cool. Um, because my whole kite surfing adventure is not going anywhere anyway. <laughs> um, send me over the links of the tutorial. So I uh, we started to learn how to code in PHP and... Um, and then we uh, thought like it would be great to make a boat rental um, company and build practically Booking.com for boats to rent because we like boats, we like uh, to go sailing and stuff like that. So we did that and that kind of worked, but it didn't work fantastically because we knew how to build the technology, but really didn't know how to build the proposition. And uh, we met these guys who came back from the US. They worked at eBay for a while. Bram and Dan, and they started a consulting company and they kind of needed uh, people to help them with that. So we said, you know what, you help us part-time to explain how we need to build our business because we don't know nothing about monetization, business modeling, whatever, uh, but we can do the math for you for and coding for you for any type of internet company that you're helping. So that was a great deal. We started working part-time for them, part-time for our own business. Actually, our own business started to do all right. Um, and then that company... Uh, that consulting company got bought by Naspers, which is, if mm. you know Naspers, yep. yeah. I mean, I think the audience of this uh, podcast, we don't have to explain. They they invest a lot in the technology atmosphere. And they offered us an incredible position to join the story of OLX, where I would, together with my uh, boss, manage the expansion of, let's say, the uh, secondhand marketplace uh, OLX uh, all over the world. And I've learned there in a few years how, let's say, the big game is played. How do you look at, let's say, a total globe? You map out your competition. You look at, let's say, how you build, you know, global strategies, how to enter many countries at the same time. And we were giving a very challenging exercise, and we built a plan. And I still remember build a plan, and we said, like, okay, we need like. Uh, 25 million and we will go into six countries next year and da, 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 and we thought this is ambitious we pitched it and CEO said like well that's nice make it 100 million and make it uh, 36 countries and we're like okay so we went into that um, that for a few years expanded OLX everywhere 
learned how to play with big media like television, how to scale technology, how to scale teams all over the world, and made a lot of mistakes. And then the, one of the founders of Olex said to me, uh, you know, Thomas, uh, this is getting really big, and it was getting really big, and you have now hired all these McKinsey kids under you in all these countries, and uh, don't you want to start something new together with me? And then we go after a real big price. We go after the U.S. together. And I said, like, okay, that that sounds exciting. So I joined Fabrice Grinda, and uh, we set up uh, a second-hand uh, platform in the U.S. And uh, together with him, we launched that from the uh, Caribbean. So in that period, I moved all around. I lived in Buenos Aires, Sao Paulo, Nairobi, Middle East for a bit. And then I moved to the Caribbean, to Dominican Republic. We built a platform there, and then we launched in the U.S. So I was living between the Caribbean and the U.S. You were living in DR, and you moved, and you launched it in the U.S. Yeah, That's so we're in the Caribbean. So we are That's in Cabaretta. That's a fascinating combo, by the Cabaretta, way. Which was, yeah. Cabaretta was like, uh, we made an Excel. Actually, Fabrice made an Excel. And he said, like, it's on the time zone of New York. Uh, it's uh, a perfect kite spot. So let's uh, go there. <laughs> kite we can, spot. Yeah, we can kite <laughs> surf and we can build this nice. and we can be in the time zone. We did that and then we realized, um, uh, I joined and we realized the competition was incredible in that space. Like Alibaba launched a second-hand app. eBay had a second-hand app. Um, there was a local one in uh, Silicon Valley that was backed by all the big names in the valley. Then Naspers uh, copied us. Uh, and then there was a Spanish Wallapop app that just raised $100 million. So everybody had a balance sheet. All those five other players had a balance sheet of plus $100 million. We had $4 million on our bank account. And we realized, like, okay, our volumes are actually 50 times lower than, you know, the number three or something in the market. So we were sitting there in the, in, the, in the Cabaretta and we're saying, like, okay, so if we need to win, we need to raise money. If we need to raise money, we need to prove that we can beat them. Um, so we said, look, if you beat somebody in New York or in Chicago or in Miami, like a big area, and you can really show that you can beat an eBay or anybody else, then you have something to talk about with an investor. So we did exactly that. We put between four cities that we thought that had the highest probability of success. We focused all our money on those four cities. And then we launched the first set of that money. And then in two, it went. And then we doubled down on those two cities. And then all of a sudden, we were bigger than everybody in New York, uh, just in New York geography, but just in New York, we're bigger than everybody. And then all of a sudden, people started calling us. Because on the other side, the investors were like, what is this app sell it that all of a sudden is bigger than everybody else? They raised like 5 million. Uh, they're bigger than all the other players in New York. Who are these guys? Then they looked at us and they said like, oh, these are the guys who build OLX globally. They know how to run classifieds. That's why they're on top. Yeah. And then we were like, okay, so now we have something to talk about. So we went to Insight Ventures who uh, had a big share in um, Wallapop. And at exactly the same time, uh, Wallapop was uh, at, at the point that they needed uh, extra strength in the team in, um, uh, in in their team to help with the US. So that was one plus one. We joined uh, the Wallapop adventure and joined that management team. And then we helped them to expand in the US, which was a massive battle against uh, mostly LetGo then. It really became a one-on-one -on -one with LetGo. And then uh, after one and a half years since start, we merged the whole U.S. operations with uh, the let-go operations. Okay. Um, and that was the point where I um, then, that was a difficult decision because I was sitting with, with Fabrice and said, like, if we merge, we lose our operational jobs because let-go will take over U.S. operations. The whole reason we were at Wallapop was to help with U.S. operations. So, you know, if you do this deal, it's good for the investors, it's good for the whole team in Spain. But, you know, two people, you, me, and my other partners would lose our jobs. And we took that, we took that deal yeah. and we thought it was better. And then I was without a job. So jobless in, in, in New York. But you've been through three mergers out of one company or something, right? Yeah. You just kept and merging and, and merging year. and merging. Yeah, yeah it was really just fast. like it was fighting to survive, fight yourself into a merger, and then, you know, go through. And because out of all those companies, in the end... The thing that's left over is a merger of uh, OfferUp, LetGo, and uh, and us. And all the other ones are dead. And is this, just for lessons uh, for the people listening, these decisions you were making, were they about survival or opportunity? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So it, it depends per time. So the last, the 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 first one was uh, opportunity. So sell it into uh, Wallop. was like, you know, if we get there, if we get that merger, tons of opportunity. And then together with the team, we can build something massive. And then with let go, reality was we were like, um, I don't know how much I can tell, but like it was, um, it was financially it was very tight on our side and it was yeah. very close. So it was like, if we, if we get there, then, you know, we survive. So yeah. it was, um, showing that we are strong enough to merge with and that we have the opportunity to maybe raise the next round. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, if, if that I got gray on the sides uh, <laughs> during that period and I was very fortunate that I had. Uh, Fabrice on my side, who was really in the lead of all of this and very experienced in this. He's like, I think, one of the most successful serial entrepreneurs we have in Europe. And um, and uh, uh, also the investors played a fair game. Yeah. Like nobody was, you know, how Naspers behaved, uh, how Inside Excel everybody behaved. It was it was fair game. Like, okay. like we were kicked out. Uh, but I think it was all fair. Yeah. Yeah, well, then maybe then we move to to Vinted. So you came as a as a now seasoned uh, seasoned founder, uh, sort of <laughs> went through. The, uh, you had a lot of experience with with different uh, investors, and one of your investors uh, at the time, Insight, was also an investor in uh, in Vinted. Yeah, and they came to you to uh, to turn Vinted around, right? Um, can you take us through that, and also maybe maybe explore as well what the relationship was and how did that work with the with the founders and uh, what what you did to change the business around, and then also the relationship with the with the venture capitalist. Yeah, yeah, I think those elements are are actually, the elements you point out are elements that in such a situation when it's not going well, it it is a huge tension field. You have the, the current founders who are operating the business, the investors who want certain returns and have certain expectations, and then if you come in as an advisor, you know everybody's looking at you like, hey, what's up with this guy? Like, and um, so that was, I realized and I saw how painful it can be at Wallapop uh, when the current CEO is not exactly performing, how much pressure is on that person, how emotional that is because it is his company that he founded and how difficult that is. And even though investors are all nice and professional maybe, it, it, the pressure on those CEOs and those founders is, is enormous. Mm -hmm. It's like all people always want to be CEOs and founders, but like, Trust me, that that's emotionally incredibly draining uh, because there's so much pressure. So when I came there, I really understood that. And um, I came there literally with like, I talked with Justus and Mantas, I met these guys and, and invited us and, and like incredible people, like super smart, like grown up in the Soviet times, built like on the age of 14 and 13, Justus built the first accounting software of Lithuania. Mantas built the first server company of Lithuania. He was the techno, the cybersecurity expert in that country. He sold his server company to Telia, which is a massive telco. Th these are people like multiple times smarter than I am, uh, grown up in very challenging environments and built this vintage, which became this European thing. And then it, it wasn't... Yeah, because it already was big, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. It was not, yeah, yeah. It, 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 so I was very impressed. And they built like payment functionality, shipping connections, the technology setup that they had. It was like, I've worked at tech companies, but everything we built was kind of like the mm. hustle, you know, yeah. compared yeah. to what these guys were building because they were true technologists and like yeah. razor sharp. Like they were winning at the ages of, uh, when they were teenagers, they were winning these uh, mathematics and informatics Olympiadas all over Europe. They had medals and stuff. Like people... Much smarter than While than building I was. companies, it sounds yeah, like at the same it, time. Like it, 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 beyond of what you've seen. So I was mostly really impressed. And that was actually the real reason why I wanted to go to, to Lithuania. I thought, like, I'm going to meet these guys. They're, they're legends. Like, okay, their business is going down the drain. I told them, okay, super interesting problem. Maybe I can help. I'll come over. Worst case scenario, I learned something from How it. How did you get connected? Was it through investors or through them? Yeah, so it was Elodie who worked for Insights. Okay, and, got it. And um, it's a very funny story. She introduced me. She was working at Insights. And later she invested with her own fund because she started her own fund. And then the fund, she made a special 
purpose vehicle that she called I told you so <laughs> that she invests in so on our cap table so I have you I told you so I told you so too so it's, <laughs> it's kind of like an, uh, in the investors nice. uh, so she introduced me she saw me at uh, operating at Wallapop she said like this guy loves to solve problems this is a big problem uh, why don't you meet and and then I met the guys I first I said that I'm not going to do that I just was in this whole merger acquisition race for one and a half year I you know, I just want to relax for a bit. Two, three lunches further. She said, just take a call just as a month. So I took a call with the guys. I was amazed by them. And I said, okay, I'll jump on the plane. See you next week. And then um, how it then went was that I, I had big respect for the founders uh, and in general, the management team there. Um, I saw that they were making very big mistakes on the, the strategic side and on the business model side and in general, on like operational efficiency. And in five weeks, I just started. Justus and Mantos, for some kind of reason, really trusted me after a couple of days. And they just said like, okay, Thomas, these are the smart data guys. This is the research department. Uh, um, use them however you want. They know that whatever you ask, they have to first solve. They told their management team, whatever Thomas asks you to do, just make time, clear agenda, and let Thomas work on seeing if he has a solution. And then after two, three weeks, I kind of had a direction and I um, I sat down with them and uh, I told them the whole thing. And I said, like, look, uh, um, it was it was a very aggressive plan. And I told them, I walked them through and it was very, you know, everything was very analytically uh, uh, argued and with a lot of logic and what we do. But in the end, the whole picture was quite dramatic. It's like... Fire half of the people, close all offices except the office in, in Lithuania, change your business model, build these new revenue streams, um, and uh, all the leftover money that that we have, we have three shots and we put it in television uh, advertising. And I went through everything, and then they started to pick it apart. add questions at all the different uh, number things. And I could realize, okay, these guys think exactly like me. So I had answers on everything. They looked at each other and they said, like, okay, let's do it. And that was like a two-hour meeting. So in a two-hour meeting, these two guys <laughs> ripped the whole plan apart, understood what I did. They had a couple comments. I said, yeah. I just want to enough. call out the efficiency. Uh, two to three weeks, I figured out the problem. And then in a couple hours, we made the decision. And then boom. Yes. Boom, boom. We're going to change the whole thing. I, there's an incredible efficiency in that story that I hope everyone hears. <laughs> well, yeah. And, 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 but but the beauty was that like I was so impressed by how quick the decision making was and the thinking of the other guys was that I said okay this is cool you know what you paid me for five weeks of consulting this is a plan you cannot execute by yourself because a lot of these things are my specialties and I know none of you have it so you know what if you have such big balls that you're gonna do this uh, you know I need to walk uh, you know talk to talk walk to walk I'll stay around for the next three months or so to to just help out. You don't have to pay me. Just get me an Airbnb and I can suspend my food and uh, I'll be fine. And uh, and off we went. And then two weeks later, we um, we had the plan in detail worked out, aligned with the management team, pitched it to the board. Um, and that went well because I think most people just gave up on the company. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and these are some pretty big decisions that they're yeah, yeah. That you're be, that the company is now willing to make to, to survive. Yeah, it was like Elodie was really like pushing like, okay, I trust Thomas. You know, if Thomas says that this is a good chance, let's just do it. Uh, and then Martin from Berda really came over and he really went into detail to the plan. He was okay with it and he was the last guy who invested. So if you're the last guy who invested at the highest valuation, you yeah, kind of have yeah. the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the yeah, biggest say in the group, you know. Because you so, had Axel on board, Inside, some of the really big names. Yeah, right? yeah, Axel, Inside, Berda. Yeah. And um, yeah, and then they say, okay, let's go for it. And then we just went. And uh, yeah, and then it went all really fast. Okay. Like, yeah, because. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get back to the kind of execution uh, part, especially yeah. how you're international, because you brought back the company to a much smaller. Uh, unit right you yeah because you had offices in the US and you closed them down and stuff but maybe uh, the relationship with the with the investors through all of this yeah yeah what are the what were some of the key takeaways you know, good and bad yeah that you can share that I, I I think one of the things that I saw and that I wanted to solve for is like 
if you have a company that's underperforming, investors try to be as polite as possible and as helpful as possible. And especially these investors, these are top tier, super good investors, right? These are not rookies that you know no. start to shout in a board meeting or demand crazy stuff. But even then, you know, the, the pressure on the founders and the current management team is so high that you really want to diffuse, let's say, that tension. So what I said from the start to Justice, who was the CEO at that time, I said, look, I'm here to help you. And, you know, whenever you want me to step back and not be here, I'll not be here. And uh, I'll, I'll go off and start start something else or join something else, whatever it is. And, and that really helped for Justus to not worry about that part and just focus uh, together with me on solving it. And because we became like a good team, also the investors at that point in time could see like, okay, you know, we trust Thomas because we saw him do good things. And now he's teaming up with these guys and this works really well. So actually, you know, it gives the whole team trust again, let's say, to to operate. So not because Justus trust obviously was a bit hurt, you know, towards the investors. Sure. But then, you know, if you very nicely collaborate together, then that trust gets built up together. So that helped. Um, and that helped to take away a lot of unnecessary discussions. Um, and then, you know, we... We went through a period that practically me, Justus Mantas, truly believe in the company yet, but the investors not yet. Oh. And that's difficult. Mm -hmm. Because then you get situations that you need to avoid that your company gets sold. You need to ensure that they let you take risk after risk to ensure that you can you know, test different things and continue to go fast. Um, and those were... Um, so this very point, very heavy, very very heavy discussion. Investors had controlling interests. Many companies yeah. that are have, don't, have maybe less professional investors, and they they don't maybe fully trust the team, and they and they will have controlling mechanisms to to make sure the team does what they want. Can yeah. you can you elaborate a bit? Yeah. So that's one of the things that I really understood how I should you know pick sides with Justus and not with the investors when I went into this consulting job. But what I really misunderstood is that I thought that I could explain them that the business is doing well in very early stages and thereby convince them. The but what I've learned is that, that that's just, you can never do that. The only thing that matters is that the actual results are really good. Yeah. And, and like, and I can, because there's so much pitching to investors, there's so much stuff, like you can talk very convincing stories. It all doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that the business starts to do good and businesses that are really good, they don't need money. Mm. And as the moment you don't need investors, all investors want you. And at a certain, like I wasted days, weeks on like building decks to convince them, explain them, fly to them, tell them like, I need another 5 million, then it will go faster. At a certain point in time, I just gave up on all of that. And I said to you, Samantha, I said, I realize now what's the case. We we need to be in a position that we don't need money. And that then became like, uh, that became clear after three months, I think. And I, I realized and I said, okay, we stopped talking to all investors because we were kicked out every investment house in London. Like I talked mm. to everybody and like, LP, like like mm. the partners would start scrolling their phones, walk off meetings, like it was <laughs> just like, like yeah. So after three, four months of- so told you so, came back. Yeah. <laughs> after all that stuff, I realized like, okay, every kilojoule of energy needs to go into one thing, getting this company to break even. I explained it to everybody in the company. I said, look, we've been talking about getting extra money to accelerate. The only thing that matters is we get to break even. Because that was the metric that they were at that point in time, because that would bring you trust. Because I mean, it's not... For many many investors, break That's even not is metric, not yeah. is not the key metric, right? No, 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 no. But but I I knew that if we would break even, we would still have growth. And I knew at the moment I would be break even. I could tell everybody that I don't need money. And I knew that if I'm growing and I don't need money, everybody wants to give me money. Yeah. And then I so I focused everybody on that, and that works super efficiently. If you have a very simple objective, then you can very easily move everybody to that. And then, you know, the little team that was left over really focusedly, like rootlessly focused on getting there. And then we got there. And then a couple months later, I could tell the investors, like uh, they were asking about how's your fundraising going. And I would sit in a board meeting, I would say like, 
oh, I'm sorry, I, I think you misunderstand uh, what kind of situation this company is in. Like, we're going to be break even and we don't need money. Um, like, uh, why don't you understand that? And then everything changes. Mm. Then, like... But that was pretty quick. I mean, you did a, a big round relatively rapidly after you joined, right? Within yeah. a year or something. So you yeah. did turn it around. Yeah, it was break even yeah. in a year. Yeah. And then, um, and then, uh, uh, yeah, one and a half year or something yeah. later, we, we, we raised. Yeah. yeah. Well, you came in in this like uh, Airbnb capacity where you were, you know, being, yeah. and, then, and then where did the switch come from? They said, no, no, we want you to lead. Yeah. Uh, gradually. Like, so. First, it was a commitment. I said, okay, I will stay for three months. And because I, I was still, like, Fabrice and I, we had an amazing run together. It was, like, it was pretty cool. And I, I, I really liked the guy. He's incredibly smart. Learned so much from him. So I always was calling with Fabrice. I said, ah, we'll stay a little bit longer here in Vilnius. He's like, fine, man. Then I'll see you then and then there. And then we browse what the next idea is going to be. We're going to start. And, um, but... Like we had three months, Germany started to work and then France started to work. And then Justus said to me, so when we were like uh, six months further, I think something like that, Justus said like, look, hey, this whole, this whole thing of like no contract and just paying your Airbnbs, let's put you on the, on the payroll and uh, let's negotiate an, uh, a, a, a share deal because we want you to, to stay longer and we want you to be a partner of us. I said, okay, that's cool. We'll figure out the share deal later. Let's first focus on this. And he gave me like, uh, I think I earned uh, two and a half thousand euros a month or something or 3,000 euros a month. And and he still would pay my uh, my, my rent because I was living in between uh, Berlin and um, Vilnius. So it was this very small employment deal. And then after nine months, we negotiated with the board uh, that they would give me a stake that was uh, kind of like that I would vest over time for years that would be similar to being a, a, yeah, kind of a founder type of yeah. situation. And then I joined um, and gradually Justus started to step back uh, over time. And uh, that all went because Justus never felt I wanted to have his job because I always told him and I, that was truly what I thought I would be. And I would be perfectly happy now being chief strategy and Justus being CEO. But Justus just decided like, Thomas, you go and run with this because this is just going better if you keep on pushing it. And then I, and he felt he was tired because it's yeah. what he did, like, let there be no mistake, right? In the end, it was Justus who had the, the, the ability and made all those mm. decisions yes. that we are here now. I mean, it was me driving it at the back, but... Like Justus went through that super intense yeah. period. Someone has to was, make the call. He had to yeah. look his, his, his colleagues in the eye when they were yes. fired. Yes, yeah. so, yeah. Mantos and Justus yeah. had to do that. Like the people who they hired. And so everybody said like Thomas fixed the uh, vintage. Well, yeah, I had a couple pretty good ideas and I really, I, I was really uh, catalyzing that, uh, that, that process. But it was them who really in the end took those decisions, brought it there. So Justus was kind of, done you know at a certain point in time he said hey man you love running with this go and run with it i trust you and and, and that's how it went so justice and me were still good friends i was at his wedding i love the guy and and we both live in vilnius and 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 yeah everything is good but it, it could have been a very dirty situation yeah. but it was not we probably have a hundred questions but I'm, i want to stay a little bit on the point of this evolution that you have had and and the question i have for you is that what were the experiences that you had earlier than vinted that yeah. most shaped because you went i mean the way you tell the story you're super cool you're super calm you know you take it nice and slow and everybody trusts you and it works so you must have had some experiences that just fundamentally shifted you didn't go in as this heavy aggressive i know what's happening you know you took a different route and i'm curious yeah. what, what shaped you to allow you to operate that maturely probably is the right way to say it i don't know if it's maturity <laughs> but um uh uh when I, when I was working at, um, I think there are two elements. So I think in, in general, I really care for people. I love them and I want to have fun when I'm working. So I, I really and genuinely enjoy solving problems. So when somebody has a big problem on his desk, I'm like excited about it. I come to them with a big smile. I'm like, oh my God, what a mess. What are we going to do? <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. 
And uh, I I've really have no interest in blaming anybody or whatever. And, and I, ju- I just go. And I think that enables people to think like, okay, we have this guy with a big smile who, you know, just comes and help. Okay, so that opens people up. And then when I approach a problem, you know, in Eindhoven, being educated as an engineer in like a physics direction, you... You, you learn about fundamental truths and you learn that, you know, you should only base your logic on things that you truly know. So, for example, when you look at um, bioengineering, if you build mathematical models of uh, the human body or any biological system, you always have certain constants in these equations that you build. You are certain things you know for sure and there are certain things you don't know about and you just make up a number that kind of describes it but it also shows you that that those are just not the things you exactly know and uh, the most important part there is that you always operate from what do i know absolutely for sure and what you know are all woulda coulda shootas Mm. and those things okay nice but let's focus on this if we know this then what's my next question and if you constantly rip problems apart like that all the other people can really easily follow you and then, you know, you say, like, I believe this because A, B, C, because this is true, right? Nobody's saying that this is not true. Yeah, okay, so let's mm-hmm. go to the next one. Yeah. And in that way, you can, in a kind of joyful way, you solve problems, rip it apart, divide it, and then everybody kind of knows what to do, and you work on that together, and then it becomes kind of fun. And I think that, and then what I what they see is that I... Uh, very frequently come back to explain what other other assumptions I previously had were wrong, for example, yeah. and why that works. And then they see that I'm very excited about the fact that I was wrong. And then they're like, oh, okay, right? so, yeah, it's so truth. It's new truth. Like, yeah, I, I think that's an exciting yeah, thing. You find so, new and truth. then they see the excitement and they're like, okay, this guy is excited about that. Uh, yeah, he was wrong. <laughs> that he was wrong, and now he's excited about that I was wrong, and yeah. it's all yeah, fine. Yeah, but you're giving some constants, and there is movement on the on the variables, right? And the, yeah. and if they're going in the right direction, then that's uh, yeah. It's quite an ego-free yeah. process yeah. as well, yeah. right? It's, so it's, when so you joined you joined the company, kind of turn it around with a new strategy, and then. Uh, you said there's a lot of there was a lot of kind of quality in the team. There was a lot of tech uh, yeah. tech quality. There was a lot of uh, I think it was very data driven. Yeah. So what what were the what were the what's the key were the key elements that that success that really rapid turnaround is based on? Yeah. And uh, what are the, what were the key metrics you were actually um, you were actually steering this this transition on? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So I think the things that were there were like excellent knowledge around engineering and not only knowledge but also operational excellence so so incredible engineers and then on the analytical side everybody in the company really understood you know maths so in lithuania like like here in the netherlands people are pretending that maths is like very difficult and only few can be good in it in lithuania it's just somebody something everybody can and, and you could see that in the company. So those things were super strong. And then the other element was that the culture uh, had an incredible um, level of commitment and pride. So they really wanted a Lithuanian company to succeed as a tech company yeah. because there were mm-hmm. none. And Lithuania just got liberated in 1991. Then there were like almost a decade of mafia wars and now for the first years, this country is finally going somewhere. You can build businesses. Technology businesses are like the new promised land and they want to be part of that. They want to prove themselves. So these people, they were not planning to go anywhere else except for trying to make this work. Like if you would have a startup in Berlin hitting not even a wall, but like a bump, like you can bet your ass the next month, the next week, half of the team is joining the next hot startup, right? Here, it was like, okay, guys, we have a 5 to 10% chance of succeeding. We just fire half of all your colleagues. Uh, we close this down. We're going through a very rough period. We're asking you to work your ass off to get to this break-even point. Can you please be with us here? And it's like, not even a doubt. It's like national pride. A whole team of like uh, a, a little bit more than hundred people back there saying like, "Yes, okay, let's do this." And that feeling 
you know, that, that I felt, I felt that in a team and I want to be part of that. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, wow, all these people, like I had always a lot of energy, but then always, you know, in Netherlands it's kind of cool to be relaxed about everything and like a bitch a bit about uh, the balls and whatever. But here it was like, let's go and do all this. And then you feel that energy that all of you want to make this work. And then, you know, all those cultural things that they say about to celebrate success or do this, they just happen. Like you're all focused on it. People are happy. Somebody else fixes something and it just goes. And and that was the strength of this mm. team. And that was one of the elements that I really saw that that could make them successful and uh, why I wanted to be mm. part but of you, that. But you're based in Lithuania. Uh, you have a fashion company, yeah. uh, B2C. Uh, so you have C2C. to understand... Uh, you know what what uh the french consumer likes i mean it, i don't think that uh a, a bunch of 100 lithuanian engineers will be too well uh well equipped understanding that market and yeah. and still i mean you went one market after the after the next in a pretty rapid order yeah so how do you, how did you make that work yeah so this comes also back to fundamental truths so The board exactly said the same to Justus Amantas. You know nothing about fashion. You need to hire people who know fashion. You need to dress more fashionable. <laughs> that's, the, <laughs> that's the common truth, right? If you want to go in fashion, you need to understand fashion. And actually, one of the things, there was a team of fashion experts when I came there who were curating content and that would help to bring up engagement. And I just A-B test, like, okay, um, what if we don't do the curated content, but we just fully randomize it? What happens? Actually, fully randomized worked better. So that was a quick OPEX win. And then I thought, like, okay, if that's a fundamental truth, then, you know, knowing fashion is just an opinion. And what is a fundamental truth is that a transaction is closed. So working to maximize a function towards optimal trading volume is a mathematical problem. That's something we're mm. pretty good at. <laughs> so, so let's go let's, work on that. Let's go work on that. So we wrote down, okay, uh, this is like a funnel and on the top you have a transaction, you need a buyer and a seller. These are the conversion funnels. These are the variables that we think are impactful. Let's put up hypothesis and run it through. And we build a machine learning unit instead of a fashion unit. And it worked like a charm. We figured out which variables are very important to make people trade, which variables are very much blockers for trading, like spam and scam and whatever. And we worked it down. We understood how customer support really helps if you respond faster. We invested in that. So we constantly work towards maximization of trade under the lowest possible cost to be able to have a very cheap fee to users, right? So we, in, we were for like two years consistently busy fully optimizing that funnel and that business model actually to get there. And then the outcome is, is that you, you, it was actually an optimization function to two things. It's the amount of transactions and the amount of people that are involved in a transaction. Because in the end, you don't want to just optimize towards transactions, just also that everybody in a country is using it. And when you do that and you're ruthlessly optimized towards that, you start to build a product that can trade close for anybody, which is exactly what you need to do. Not just trade maximum amount of clothes for somebody with a certain taste. Like mm. Google didn't build an email for people with certain tastes. Or They search, built email yeah. for society. So if you're going to build a platform that trades clothes, you want to build a, a platform that does that for society, not for Generation Z. Like that's just a subset. So you like remove, who wants to? You sort of remove judgment and things like yeah, that. Yeah. So, so I don't know about fashion. Let's not pretend I know about fashion. Let's just look about how I build technology that, in the most efficient way, as fast as possible, brings people to the point where they're coming. You know what they where they want to get, and that means they come to us to buy or to sell. Hmm. So how do we get them there as efficient and as good as possible? And then all of a sudden it becomes a simple mathematical optimization. And you can break that down into different things like trust, liquidity, uh, shipping, payments, uh, you know, every element. And you can start seeing which of these elements have more impact on the total maximization. And then everybody understands that. And then it just becomes like in a very ordered way, solving all those little problems more and more. And then, uh, uh, yeah, and then you get there. And then if you connect that like, okay, to expansion. So, um, 
it's it's exactly the same. You just say like, hey, we've got this going now and we have actually so many problems solved that the efficiency and the speed of growth is in one country where we want it to be. We actually have some space to start thinking about other things. Let's pick another country that is quite similar where we think we will get successful as well. Uh, well, actually, we tried many different things and then, you know, those failed because we tried the US directly and like uh, UK and we thought it was very difficult. And we said like, okay, wait, this is too difficult. Let's go back again to what we know. We said, okay, we know it works in France, it works with these people. Hey, you know what? Belgium. Next door, half the people speak French. Uh, we have the same shipping providers that we already know. We can work with them and we did Belgium and boom, it worked. We found that it didn't work directly. We had a couple of things that we need to fix and we're like, 15 things or something, I don't know, that, that kind of mm -hmm. order of magnitude, and then started to go. It took us three months. And then I was like, ah, okay, wait, this grand uh, expansion thing, it's actually realized by slow focus. So you take a country, you rip that country apart, understand exactly what the issues are, fix for that, get the country going. And everything you learn in Belgium becomes actually more important to, uh, becomes actually valuable for France as well, because you solve certain issues that some French people also have. So then we just gradually, we went from Belgium to Spain to the Netherlands. And every time we learn, we deploy better, we become better mm. and, and yeah, and your, your core engine becomes better. Yeah. But you do acquire as well. I mean, you, you, yeah. Yeah. And, and is there, w w what point do you decide to, uh, to grow through acquisition in a market or you actually yeah. just let the, get the engine going? Yeah, it, it's, an, um, it, it's again an, uh, uh, a trade-off of long-term uh, efficiency. So at that point in time, you look at in Spain and you see that another party is really struggling because you're there. If they keep struggling next to you for a while, you s grow slower as well because they do split up the market and uh, create a competition and whatever. And then you actually, at a certain point in time, it's clear that, you know, you're doing, you know, Vint is doing really well and they're struggling. It becomes clear to these people that actually teaming up would be better for them as well and better for us. And then you can just together team up to compete with, let's say, the Facebook marketplaces and uh, the, the big classifieds in this world. Uh, then, you know, fighting each other with, with a similar uh, proposition. And, so we do those deals uh, when we feel comfortable that um, uh, that that both uh, win and um, that we and and, okay, and you don't grow strategically and you don't acquire a company in a in a market as an entry as an entry. No, uh, we've not done no, You first compete and then and then yeah. you acquire. So you didn't just, you're not yeah. buying customers yeah. as much as you're buying market. You're getting into you're yeah. allowing market share to come your way. Yeah, I mean United yeah. Wardrobe yeah. had uh, a, a very well working community. And if you think about the short term, like it might be a little bit expensive, but then if you look at the long term, because we bought the United Wardrobe, the Dutch marketplace, because those things came together, it really flourished. Like two big communities, are, you know, together are more valuable for that community. So it really flourished. And we had, as a company, not to worry that much about the Netherlands anymore. And we had the whole United Wardrobe team that, you know, went after Canada. And so then focus yeah. of the company can become more global. They go after a wild card market and we can uh, consolidate our focus. So it is more of an um, acceleration of, let's say, your roadmap of the focus points you want to have that you all of a sudden can stripe to away and you can get two extra. And then, hmm. you know, that, 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 then it's valuable to, to buy something. And in the case of United Wardrobe, you know, it was an amazing team. Like, I love the guys. They work uh, very nicely and, like, very smartly and very entrepreneurial. It's, it's super cool. So it's a real addition to your team. With the Spain case, it was very different. These guys was culturally quite different, and they wanted to go to Latin America. So we said, you know what? Just give us then your Spanish platform, and then you can go after your Latin American dream, and we, we take Spain. Yeah. And... Um, uh, and they sold off Spain to us, and they went to to Latin America. And so, one 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 kind of final question in in the traditional questions, and then we'll do some quick ones. So, a lot of times things are all about timing, you know. And you, yeah. we talked about this, what's happened with Vinted, and the point in which you came in, and the, sort of the recovery of the company, and you know, it's flourishing now. <clears throat> Did that timing also 
coincide with like any market shifts. Like I look at this market and I look yeah. at the how gener young generations and and I don't I don't I want it to be more collective. It's not just young people. It's a lot of people are looking at fast fashion and they and, and they want recycle and upcycle. This is a whole movement where people just won't even buy new clothes anymore. Was that happening at the same time, or did you guys pick up on that earlier? What role has that played? So I think Yusuf Amelda built something before there was any hype around this, and it really took off in that freemium model to a certain level, really, let's say, uh, driven by that they made that product. Then, you know, in 2016, when I was there, already that movement started to be there, and that consciousness around, you know, it's not cool to just only buy new stuff because it's very taxing on the environment. Let's think smarter around this. And then I think in the last few years, um, actually there, it went from something smart to something cool, I mm. think. Um, so, so really- uh, Something right. Something end. right yeah. to yeah, do, that's yeah. A nice, nice, that's a nice flow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think now that people see that it is an, um, an unavoidable trend. So um, it, in the beginning it goes too cool and then in the end it becomes an unavoidable trend. And I say it's an unavoidable trend that the, the, the fashion industry will have to go to um, a point that it becomes fully sustainable. Industries will have to go there. And uh, um, there will be laws and taxation that in the end is going to do it. It's not yet there, but I'm, I'm talking, let's say, two decades time frame, right? I'm not talking about next year. It, it, it'll have to go there. So then when you think about that, um, you see that people want it, governments are lining up, and in the next 10 years uh, to two decades, I don't know, that, that will happen. And when you look at it at, from that way, this is the fashion business is one of the biggest businesses in, 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 in you know, period. And uh, at thus, uh, you know, you're going to have a massive shift there. And thus being on the part of where you are ahead of that, it's a tremendous business opportunity. So what I always try to, to say that everybody works at Vinted is like, look, it, it is absolutely needed that industries become sustainable. Like otherwise there is no, you know, our species has no place in, 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 on this planet. The planet will be there, trees will flourish again, but we will be gone at a certain point in time. And... Um, but to get there, you know, um, charities have a fantastic role in this society, but capitalism is one of the most powerful forces we have. So if we can use capitalism to uh, enforce the change of a sustainability issue, we can do that at a speed and an efficiency that is, you know, yeah. far beyond what you can do with, with charities or with yeah. like other programs. Yeah. And I, I, I really, I support myself charities and I'm, 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 I'm a big believer in it. But thus, what we need to do with Vinted is that we need to very, very sharply align ourselves on this sustainability issue and ensuring that consumption becomes sustainable. And then on the other hand, ensure that we find a fantastic business model to accelerate that as fast as possible. Because I can raise hundreds of millions to build a fantastic business, but I can maybe raise hundreds of thousands of euros to, to, to run a charity to try and change it. And if I actually build something that is a great business that changes the way people consume, then I can actually have the biggest possible impact to solve this problem. So if you just look at fundamental truths of how, what is the fastest way to solve this sustainability issue, then I believe in it to build an inherent sustainable company that changes the way people consume in this industry. And so, Therefore, those two things of capitalism and sustainability can then live together and then can solve this issue. So, so that, that, that's, yeah, that's what we're trying this to do. This is the marriage of purpose and profit. Yeah, and I think, um, I think it makes it simple because yeah. then you just really know what, what, yeah, why you're doing it, right? And, 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 and it just feels then, um, it feels of good use of your time. I mean, <laughs> so let me throw a few quick questions, uh, short answer form. One of my questions is, um, what is the one thing you find to be true that most people would disagree with? Ah, um, uh, that like what I know that is true is that most common knowledge is not true. So, so a, a lot of things that many people say, it's just not true. 
Like in, in general, that's that's many times that's the case. And like it's 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 sometimes you're a very irritating person because then somebody's telling something and you're like, really, that sounds odd. And then what most people do, and this is also why social media works, is like if something is a bit odd, but it sounds nice, then it goes viral, right? And it's the same with offline stories, common truth. Like if it's like a catchy story, then that becomes the truth, but it's actually not. And 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 there are many examples of this. And and in in. And I think that is something that if you keep that in mind, when you s hear something that is like, huh, then that should be the trigger. It's like, okay. This may be a rhetorical question in the sense that it's, uh, there's always a conversation with the different entrepreneurs we speak with, uh, momentum versus precision. Yeah. And and I, th I think you're leaning in the precision side, but I don't know. Which do you choose, momentum or precision? Or, or which one do you lean towards to get yeah, things done? Yeah, I think... The moment I have enough precision, then then, then moment, mom, moment. Momentum. Like then you can break the rest. Like if you know what you're breaking, but you know that the speed will get you there, it's okay. But my team, um, we did this chart and uh, uh, my, my team, like the moment I don't know it, I just say, okay, let's figure it out. And we, I don't take a decision. I just go back and I start asking questions to get to understanding. And I think you call it in some framework that you're green. So you, you go to green and then when you're in stress, in a difficult situation, you go and try to figure it out. And then you come back with the decision. And I think that's kind of inherent in our whole management team. Yeah, but you don't wait. You don't wait till perfectionism is, is achieved. No. You wait till you understand and once you get it. Yeah. The last question is more of a statement, where I guess, is that we've got a lot of listeners. They run their own companies. They're starting these companies. Any final words of advice that you would offer to these current and future entrepreneurs? Whenever you um, are in a decision um, and you, 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 you feel that it's a tricky uh, situation, I think um, if it's a tricky situation, you have to take a risk and you're risking money, that, that's perfectly fine. Um, but if you're risking, let's say, your own trustworthiness or like people's reputation, um, stuff like that, never risk anything of that. So we have, let's say, as an entrepreneur, you have to take a lot of risk, break rules, but there are also very much very needed rules in society that keep us behaving like pleasant human beings. And we have laws around it and we have you know, social conduct on how we treat each other. So you get trained to take risk and break rules to a certain extent by you're breaking what is thought to be the right thing to run a business and you make a new business model and you're praised for that maybe. Then on the other hand, do not cross those other boundaries because th those are, you know, those are way more valuable to yourself and to others and, and they're not worth breaking to accelerate your business. All right. Thank you, Thomas. I think that last, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a lesson that goes a bit beyond just uh, running a business. But yeah. uh, and, and thank you very much for this uh, super inspiring uh, conversation. Thanks. Um, Absolute pleasure. And yeah, it was a great pleasure. Thanks for having you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Yeah. It was lovely. Thank you for listening to The Scale Lab, a podcast brought to you by TechLeap. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please share it on your network via social media and give us your feedback. See you on the next episode.